Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, the book of Hosea, chapter 7. Well, you know, there's a, there's a reason that Hosea is the first time that I've created commentary on an Old Testament book of prophecy. Now, while personally, in those books, I find hope and promise and validation of, of my faith. On the other hand, I'm not sure how broad the audience for it is, because prophetic works also can be somber and serious, serious and um, the severe guide, the severe side of God's on full display. Now, so-called New Testament Christians, especially the more evangelical branches of it, prefer to focus their prophetic understanding on the book of Revelation, tend to further sharpen that focus to such things as the rapture, the return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Why? Because, at least on the surface, these things all sound quite joyous and uplifting. I mean, the, the, the drawback with the mindset of only being interested in the pleasant things of Bible prophecies is that it diminishes or ignores what is also prophesied concerning what leads us to get there. Unpleasant things, chaotic things, evil, dark things. So when one begins to do a serious and thorough study of any of the several books of prophecy, quickly we find that they deal mostly with the unpleasant, the chaotic, the dark, and the evil. The result often is that the passages are just skimmed over, the reader relieved to be done with them in order to, to kind of just move on to happier things. I mean, who wants to spend hours, days, weeks, months? reading of doom and gloom. See, the crux of the issue is for us all to recognize that God did not inspire the prophets to write these things down in order to depress us. They're meant to warn. They're meant to announce God's displeasure. But also, in the end, there is hope. And much more than simply being a divine rant, those prophetic words were usually fashioned in the hope that the recipients might open their ears and, and, and become a, aware of their, their sin and their, and their wrongdoing and repent. And in a case like Hosea's prophecy, make actual, tangible preparations for what's coming. And while we'd all prefer to only address the many exhilarating things in the Bible, the reality is that for our own good, we need to hear. We need to heed how God views our individual religiosity and our behavior. We need to know about the hard times ahead and not simply race forward in some unguarded exuberance 
that somehow as believers, we're going to be exempt from all these troubles. And yet, as we read throughout the Bible, and we find that human nature has always been such, that the majority of humans will ignore these warnings and continue life seeking our own agendas, establishing and living out our own values and priorities, assuming that all is going to be well. God's people tend to, to kind of wobble and toddle forward in history, acting as though God hasn't made us aware. Or that there's no way to know what is going on all around us that simply confirms what the prophets have told us. God sees our ignorance and inaction in response to his warnings as faithlessness. Faithlessness. I mean, after all, if you knew for certain that in one week your grocery store would run out of food, would you sit on your hands and do nothing? If you knew for certain that tonight a thief would attempt to break into your home, would you go to bed, sleep peacefully without taking any preventative action? So, indeed, when God is warning us through His prophets, it is guaranteed that what He's telling us is going to happen. If we take no action, we make no response, then clearly it means we don't believe God. So open up your Bibles now to Hosea chapter 7. Hosea chapter 7. We're going to reread the chapter. Hosea chapter 7. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I'm ready to heal Israel, the crimes of Ephraim confront me along with the wickedness of Shomron of Samaria. For they keep practicing deceit. Thieves break in, bands of robbers raid outside. They never say to themselves that I remember all their evil. Now their own deeds surround them. They're right in front of me. They make the king glad with their wickedness and the leaders with their lies. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker, who doesn't stoke the fire from kneading time till the dough has risen. On their king's special day, the leaders inflame him with wine, and he joins hands with scorners, who ready themselves like an oven while they wait for their chance. Their baker sleeps through the night, then in the morning it bursts into flame. They are all as hot as an oven. They devour their judges. All their kings have fallen. Not one of them calls out to me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim has become a half-baked cake. Foreigners have eaten up his strength, but he didn't know it. Yes, gray hairs appear on him here and there. He doesn't know it. The pride of Israel testifies in his face. But in spite of all this, they haven't returned 
to Adonai their God or sought him. Ephraim behaves like a silly foolish dove, going to Egypt, then to Asher for help. And even as they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds from the sky. I will discipline them as their assembly was told. Oh, woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have wronged me. Am I supposed to redeem them when they have spoken lies against me? They have not cried out to me from their hearts, even though they wail on their beds. They assemble themselves for grain and wine, yet they turn away from me. It was I who trained and strengthened their arms, yet they plot evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like an unreliable bow. Their leaders will die by the sword because of their angry talk. They will become a laughing stock in the land of Egypt. Well, we concluded our previous lesson by reading all of 2 Kings chapter 15 because it lays out this sad, murderous history of a series of Israel's kings who were assassinated, which is being prophesied right now in Hosea chapter 7. Now, it turns out that such an instability of, of rapid turnover the government leadership was, and it remains to this very day, the very visible death throes of a nation. This chapter describes how Israel runs to and fro to the nation's most powerful nations, Egypt and Assyria, who by the way were enemies of one another, seeking alliances against their sister kingdom, Judah. Verse 2 rather sums up the fantastic reality that Israel had become so degenerate in their mindset and worship that it never occurs to them that the real problem between them and Jehovah is their own wickedness. They think this is all about politics. It's all about economics, the ambitions of their, their kings and emperors. Now, for the sake of study, it's really not a bad idea to see this chapter is broken into four segments. Segment 1. That's verses 1 and 2 that speaks of the crime tidal wave that has struck Israel, a general societal breakdown. Segment 2, verses 3 through 7. This is about Israel's corrupt government and its domestic agenda. Segment 3, verses 8 through 12. It reflects Israel's disastrous international policies. And segment 4 is verses 13 through 16 that warn of the consequence of all this wickedness, all this unfaithfulness that is present throughout every level of Israelite society. The destruction of Israel as a nation, the disappearance of them as a people. Well, as concerns Ephraim Israel's domestic agenda, verse 3, it explains that the kings of Israel revel in their evil, and their government minions tell the people lies to bring about the king's aims. I mean, I, I want to pause here for a moment. I do not often talk politics in my lessons, but the subject of this section of Hosea is politics. So it's not a 
something I can avoid. Are we not in the 21st century witnessing, throughout the Western world at least, our national leaders on a determined campaign to glorify what God calls evil and immoral, and damning what God calls good and moral? Just as with the kings of Israel that swore that the evil and the idolatry they were teaching and practicing was actually God's will, so do many modern political leaders on the one hand profess some Christian affiliation or at least a Christian-based moral philosophy, but on the other virtually disavow or even mock God's commands and God's truth, even if that isn't sufficient for them. They feel they must celebrate and insist that others join them in advocating for every immoral and perverted thing. And what do these leaders and officials and representatives do? They lie about their true agenda. Today it's called spin, in order to make it sound normal and legitimate. And this is if they think the people they govern aren't quite ready to accept it. Or they lie about the agenda's true goal and purposes. So says verse 4, this makes them all, all of Israel's political leadership, adulterers. On Hosea, this is a metaphor for idolaters. And just to remind you, what is idolatry? Fundamentally, it is remaking God into our image, in whatever way we might attempt it. We're well, beginning with verse 4. Hosea introduces a new metaphor to help describe Israel's corrupt leaders. An oven, and then the baking process. Now we run into a problem, however, because so much of the next several verses are in bad repair in the oldest manuscripts, so translating them necessarily takes some amount of educated speculation. This is the reason that we can find some wildly differing translations of these verses in various Bible versions. So I defer to some of the best language scholars that specialize in the ancient, not modern, Hebrew and other Semitic languages who are at the same time well-versed in ancient modern, uh, in, rather ancient uh, Hebrew and Middle Eastern cultures, and among these are S.M. Paul and Mayor Gruber. Now, there is almost no choice but to attempt to reconstruct these verses on kind of a thought-for-thought -thought approach, rather than from a word-for-word -word literal translation, because the text is so damaged, all right, that it's quite hard to do. And at times, even knowing, trying to ex decide what all the letters are is written in all these ancient scroll fragments. And that's what we have, is fragments. Now, Isn Paul says that here is how, now this is using the modern English language, we should understand the gist of verse 4. It says, all of them, the political leaders, are continually engaged in adultery. 
like a stove fired by a baker who desists from stoking only from the kneading of the dough until it's leavening. Now, for we moderns, <laughs> even this is a bit difficult to understand. And that's because we don't know about the ancient baking process. Further, Paul says that the first few Hebrew words are likely an expression, and so ought to be taken to mean all of them are raging like a blazing oven, either way. We get the idea of the behavior of Israel's political leaders is likened to a hot oven. So before we proceed, I'm going to explain the ancient oven and the process for baking bread. And then this verse is going to make a little more sense to us. Okay. The ancient oven was made of fired clay and it had kind of a beehive, a beehive rather, uh, shape to it. it. Had a door placed either at direct ground level or alternatively a, a little bit elevated. It almost always had a stone floor in it. And a fire would be built inside the oven and it would allow to burn until the oven was about as hot as it could get. Then the baker would stop adding wood and let it burn down until there was nothing left but glowing coals. These coals remained inside the oven during the baking process. So, as you can imagine, what a smoky flavor everything, including bread, that was baked in that oven took on. The idea was that now that the interior walls of the oven were super hot, the hole at the top of the oven, this is the chimney that allowed the needed airflow for the fire to burn properly, it would be sealed off in order to help retain the, the built-up heat. Now, interestingly, the way that the bread was typically baked was not so much in loaves, but rather as a flat bread. So a flattened eh, dinner plate sized chunk of dough would be pressed up against the interior wall of the oven, and there, stuck to the wall, it would bake for a while. And in a few minutes, the half-baked dough would need to be turned over, restuck to the wall's inner oven, and that would complete the baking process. Now, making the bread dough mixture involved adding yeast, usually, and then some amount of time allowed for it to rise, let's say one to two hours, before it was ready to be baked. Now, I say usually, because adding yeast, because the bread mixture itself regularly involved adding oil with water, and this would, it would rise some amount on its own without the addition of yeast. It was, a, it was a natural process. It occurs when water and oil is added to the ground wheat. It, 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 it's very similar with pasta. Now the trick was to prepare the fire, to ready the amount of dough, with the kneading process being the moment that the yeast is added. Then you have to coordinate it all. Bread that had risen too much, was sometimes just nestled in among the coals instead of being stuck to the sides of the oven. And with this delicate baking process in mind, something that took much skill 
and experience, hence the need for professional bakers. Let's continue. Well, now that verse 4 has set up the oven metaphor, verse 5 moves to talk about how some of, the, of Israel's kings were going to be assassinated. And Mayor Gruber has reconstructed this verse, amending the way it has been in the past, because translated, and all these translations, as must necessarily be, were based on what the missing letters were assumed to be. It's different because it's traditionally translated, it comes out mostly nonsensical. His reconstructions, I think, are very reasonable and likely. And he's probably quite close to the sense of it because he operates within the theme of assassination of royalty, which is what's being expressed. He says it's better to read it. The days on which they made our kings sick by means of poison instead of wine. He, meaning any of the series of Israelite kings at this time, stretched out his hand to mocking persons. This means the people who handed him the poisoned wine. In the end, this verse is explaining that drunkenness was par for the course in the royal court, that the kings were luscious, and that those who backed a different and rival potential king took advantage of these drunken parties in order to spike the wine with poison. Well, verse 6 again injects the oven and baker metaphors, and S.M. Paul offers what he thinks is a better solution to this awkward sentence. He says it ought to read, Truly their inwards are like an oven, their hearts like a blazing fire within them. The complete Jewish Bible translates it, who ready themselves like an oven while they wait for their chance. Other versions use different words, but they're all generally amounting to the same thing. The jealous passions of these political assassins are blazing hot, like an oven, and waiting for the right moment to seize power through murder. Now this verse concludes with, their baker sleeps through the night, and then in the morning it bursts into flame. See, the idea is that these governmental leaders are so consumed in their desire for power that whether they're awake or asleep, they cannot stop plotting and conspiring. Just can't do it. Power has become the sole goal of their existence. Nothing else matters to them. Verse 7 concludes this segment about the corrupt, power-mad government leaders and want-to-be government leaders with this summary. The out-of-control fervor of various government officials could end in nothing else but their personal destruction to be followed by national destruction. And while this was not a particularly new circumstance within Israel's government, it was the extreme nature of the disregard for ethical, moral behavior that's in view. And despite its relatively small size in the reason, uh, region, what had allowed Israel and Judah to remain free and independent was their dedication to seeing to their own security and not depending on others for it. This very much reflects modern Israel's understanding of what is necessary for its own continuance. But now, in this era 
Hosea is prophesying about, things have changed. Israel and Judah are constantly warring against one another. Israel's, Israel fears it just can't stave off Judah, and so they go to Assyria for help. We might say they each tried to make a pact with the devil. And God says, all of the kings have fallen, not one of them calls out to me. And here is the molten core of this entire book of Hosea. Rather than humble themselves and call out to Jehovah for help, they take matters into their own hands. They decide that a man-made political solution that involves close ties with pagan nations, this is the way to assure their continuing existence. But there is one thing that always needs to make, be made clear in matters like these. This has not changed much over the millennia. Government leaders are often willing to give up national treasure, sovereignty, provided the conquering nation will allow them to retain their lucrative positions. And when Israel finally does make alliance with Israel, it is at an enormous cost of tribute paid to them in return for allowing the king of Israel to stay in power. Any idea of a solution <laughs> that involved the best welfare of the common people of Israel, that was purely an illusion. You know, it's hard to overstate how deluded and degenerate Israel's leaders had become. How did they finally arrive at such a state of mind, something bordering on insanity? It began with a civil war, soon after Solomon died. And thus united Israel became divided into two separate kingdoms in a selfish act that completely ignored God's creation of this twelve-tribe confederacy. And when King Jeroboam became the leader of the northern kingdom in another selfish act, he decided he did not want his citizens traveling to that temple in Jerusalem to worship and sacrifice, because he would be ceding some level of control and money to Judah. So he built his own temple in Samaria, set up multiple worship sites, using convenience as the tool to attract his citizens to use those worship sites rather than having to travel all the way to Jerusalem. And this necessarily involves setting up a separate religious system with its own priests, because it just wasn't possible to follow the law of Moses if he cuts his people off from Jerusalem because that was the one and only worship center God allowed. The proper observation of their Orthodox Hebrew faith centered in Judah. It was the classic slippery slope. And the thing you learn early in life is that the further down that slope you slide, you gain speed. Eventually things are moving so fast you lose all control. Unable to change direction, crashing becomes inevitable. And I call on you again, look at the world around you. And not so much recoil in horror and difference, but rather pay sober attention 
Make what you're learning in Hosea real. Make it personal in your life. That's why I was placed here. The similarities between ancient Ephraim, Israel, and most of our planet at this time in history are eerily close. What I've been describing to you is not allegory. It's not hyperbole. It's borne out by recorded history itself. God has given us an opportunity to learn the truth, prepare spiritually, ready ourselves and our families physically and tangibly for what is inescapable. And you know what? None of us wants to hear that. Corruption and immorality are now baked into our societies. You know, we might be able to chip away at it times, times, but... We're not going to drive it out. We can fix it within ourselves, but even then not by our own methods and, methods and standards. God says, seek me. Especially if you're a God worshiper, seek Him. It's when we don't. And instead we turn to ourselves or to our trendy popular means to be soothed of our concerns and anxieties that we move even further away from God. But you know what? We don't even recognize that it's happening. Because it can feel so good to us. However, eventually the distance between us and the Lord becomes so great that it can no longer be easily bridged. Well, verse 8 opens the segment of this chapter that is concerned with Israel's king's absurd, ruinous venture into international diplomacy and geopolitics. It opens with calling again on the oven and baking metaphor to make the point. Essentially, Ephraim is that bread dough, and the peoples, that is the Gentile nations, they're the yeast, they're the leaven with the two being mixed together to form a batch that you essentially you can't take it back apart. When does leaven, or rather, what does leaven reg regularly symbolically represent in the Bible? You know this. Sin. Sin. And because these Gentile people necessarily worship other gods, they automatically stand against Jehovah. This is sin. So Ephraim, by mixing with the Gentiles, is mixing himself with sin. Ephraim is described here as a half-baked cake, or more literally, a cake that's not been turned. You see that now with the oven metaphor, how it works? Recall what we learned now, just to help you, about that baking process, the dough being stuck to the inner wall of the oven. About halfway through that process, the half-done dough has to be turned over. Now, there's an interesting alternative translation that S.M. Paul suggests. Recall that even should we have all the alphabet characters for the verses, they're all only consonants. So two or more different Hebrew words can be spelled identically. The only way to know the difference among them 
is a combination of context and how they're vocalized. How are they spoken? What they sound like. And it is in speaking these words that we add in the vowel sounds. Therefore, employing some different vowel sounds with the same Hebrew letters, the same phrase can legitimately be in this verse Ephraim shall be needed among the nations. That works. This works really well. Really, though, although there is some nuance between the two different thoughts, the result's the same thing. Israel is going to be physically blended in with the nations. The people are exiled into the foreign nations, just as they had already for a century been blended in with the nations religiously and politically. Well, prior to Israel's exile, the mixing was a purposeful leader-led one as a result of Israel's frantic search for hopeful partnerships and alliances with various foreign countries for what Israel believed was its own survival. So they looked again to pagan leaders for their salvation instead of to Jehovah. Now what this led to, however, and this is key, what it led to was a loss of their identity. And I've spoken on a number of occasions about the key biblical concept of identity and its central role in religious faith. Their first loss of identity came with a weakening association with Jehovah, then with their sister kingdom Judah, and finally with the land itself. I mean, look around us. America is losing its identity. And I regularly read about the battle for identity within many European nations. Some people wanting to retain their historical identity, others wanting to blend it with whatever comes as a show of tolerance and diversity. In every case, every case, this push away from their traditional identity began with a weakening association with God. Every case. Remove God from the equation and we lose the basis for what binds us together as a culture and as a society. Our ethics, our morals, our legal system, our values, our virtues. Before there's any, man, any misunderstanding at all, I am not speaking of ethnicity. Our identity as Americans, for instance, has no foundation in ethnicity. We're the proverbial melting pot of ethnicities. Israel's identity as Israelites and as the seed of Abraham finally ended when they were dispersed into the nations where the bulk of them would no longer have any idea of their own ancestral heritage. This was total loss of one's identity and the gain of an entirely new one and not for the better. And as verse 9 says, It is Israel's want of association with people who don't fear or worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
that leads to this. But even more frightening is they don't even realize that this loss of identity is happening to them. The first half of verse 9 continues to employ the oven and baking metaphor, but the second half then adds in the metaphor of an aging and dying person, signified by speaking of gray hairs appearing. Yet neither the people nor their national leaders recognized it. Each was too busy chasing their personal ambitions or simply living their lives. Well, by the late 730s BC, Israel was dying at an alarming rate as an identifiable and set-apart people. When one identity cannot be distinguished from another identity, there no longer in reality exists two identities but one. I'm going to step out on a limb a little bit now, risking some blowback. Church, I ask for us to reconsider with sober introspection if institutional Christianity has not either already lost its identity or is dangerously, perhaps fatally, infested with Hosea's gray hairs and so is speeding towards a loss of identity. I mean, ask yourself, can you tell the average believer from the average secular person simply by observing them? Can you spot the person who claims belief in Christ from a person who is ambivalent about the God of Israel or expressly a non-believing person or believes in another God altogether? See, the church's identity today seems more and more based on those little fish symbols on cars or cross icons or even stars of David hung around our necks, or how big the Christmas and Easter celebrations are. But if those things were removed, could our identity with God be spotted by how we live, how we behave, and the choices we make? How about church and Christian organizations? You know, are there for signage, vocabulary, certain claims they make are many much different from any typical business group? I'm going to answer that by saying that most certainly some are, but sadly many are certain. They're certain. They're doing righteous work and are safely within God's sheepfold, but they aren't. Not any more than Ephraim Israel was. Far too much paganism and materialism and personal kingdom building has crept into the orthodox biblical faith and as a result our all-important identity with God is at great jeopardy. The push within the church body today is not to be separated from the world, but rather to be as much a part of it as possible. And the hope of a wider popular acceptance. Do we seek the Lord to help us or to guide us? Do we turn directly to the Bible to find the moral code to apply to our lives? Or do we turn to secular people for their advice and rescue? 
to ever-changing civil and criminal law codes as the determiners of right and wrong, moral and immoral, ethical and unethical. No one, nor is God, expecting our complete physical separation from the world. He also didn't expect that from Israel. But he did expect that the associations we create would lead to the world being attracted to the God of Israel, not the people of God being attracted to the ways of the world. Now, twice now we've seen the phrase, this is scary, but Israel didn't know. Israel didn't know. So it's not that Israel had malice aforethought, or even seriously considered that what they were doing was evil and the cause of their loss of peace with God, which in turn had been the cause of their political and economic disasters. Rather, their ignorance was because of their refusal to examine themselves in light of God's moral law code, in light of the law of Moses, and of the redemptive change that could come by seeking him. Well, moving on. Verse 10 is, The pride of Israel testifies in his face, but in spite of all this, they haven't returned to Adam, neither God or sought him. Now, this sounds a bit awkward, mostly because of what testifies in his face means and exactly what the pride of Israel is attempting to communicate. Now, face is just a Hebrew way of speaking about a person's or God's presence. Gruber says this means Essentially, Israel's pride has been humbled before his eyes. Whose eyes? Whose eyes? I think that perhaps we ought to see this as a perfect, perfectly parallel thought taken from Hosea 5.5, because there, in 5.5 we read, Israel's arrogance will testify in his face. Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their crimes. Now, most translators and commentators feel quite confident that the meaning of Hosea 5.5 could be best expressed as saying that Israel's arrogance testifies against him. That is, their arrogance reveals their poor character. Therefore, I think we ought to take Hosea 7.10 the same way. Israel's pride testifies against him, and this reveals his true character. Now, just like the clumsy thief who falls out, this, falls out of the second-story window or stumbles and falls trying to run off with his ill-gotten gain, the thwarting his criminal efforts, so we ought to interpret the meaning of Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their crimes. It's, it's, it's just more of an expression of being exposed and then failing in their efforts rather than actually meaning stumbling and falling down to the ground. Well, verse 11 is interesting because it incorporates yet another new metaphor, doves. Ephraim is likened to a foolish dove because they bounce around between Assyria and Egypt trying to find help. You know, as a boy living in a farm area that grew much grain, there was an abundance of doves. So I often went dove hunting with buddies. Now, I'm a little ashamed to say that doves are pretty easy targets. They just don't seem to have the sense of caution that other game birds have. They'll fly into these fields of grain, particularly after a harvest, and they're so interested in gorging themselves on the plenty 
that you could just as easily walk up and club them with the butt of your gun as to shoot them. Matter of fact, you almost have to shoo them to get them to fly to make any sport of it. After all, for boys, the big boom was mostly what it was all about. So yes, from that standpoint, doves are silly with no mind. Now through Hosea, God says that's what Israel has become like. They see, but they just don't comprehend the grave danger they're in. They listen, but they don't hear the rumblings of the coming catastrophe. And whatever their reaction and efforts, it always seems to be making the wrong choice. Now what this is referring to, is Israel flip-flopping from one alliance to another. One minute Egypt looks attractive, the next Egypt's enemy, Assyria, looks pretty good. One king makes an agreement with Assyria, the next one breaks it. It's worth it to look again to the opening verses of this time, 2 Kings chapter 16, to explain this in actual historical terms. Don't go there, I'm just going to read it to you. Starting at verse 1 of 2 Kings 16. It was in the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, that Ahaz, the son of Yotam, king of Judah, began his reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to rule, and he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem. But he did not do what was right from the perspective of Adonai his God, as David his ancestor had done. Rather, he lived in the manner of the kings of Israel. He even made his own son pass through fire as a sacrifice, in keeping with the abominable practices of the pagans whom Adonai had thrown out ahead of the people of Israel. He also sacrificed and offered on the high places, on the hills, under any green tree. Then Retzin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to fight against Jerusalem. And they put Ahaz under siege, but they couldn't overcome him. It was at that time that Retzin, king of Aram, recovered a lot for Aram and drove the Judeans from a lot, whereupon people of Edom came to a lot to live, as they do to this day. Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglat-Pileser of Asher with this message, I am your servant and your son. Come up, save me from the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was in the house of Adonai and in the treasures of the royal palace and sent it as a present to the king of Asher. The king of Asher heeded him. The king of Asher attacked Damasek, that's Damascus, and he captured it. Then he carried its people captive to care and killed Retzin. So, see, what this is explaining is that in the seventeenth year of the reign of Pekah, who was king of Israel during that time, which was the same time that King Ahaz began his reign as the king of Judah, Pekah made an alliance with a guy named Retzin, who was the king of Aram. He was the king of, of, of uh, Syria not Assyria, Syria. And together they went down to Judah to fight Haz. Well, the king of Syria not only helped Israel win, but Syria also acquired for themselves the important Red Sea port city of Elat. It had been part of Judah. That resulted in yet another people the people of Edom coming to a lot to live. And after that disastrous loss, the king of Judah, Ahaz, sent a message to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, offering allegiance 
if he would come and help him defeat Israel and Syria so he could take his territory back. But that alliance with Assyria was hugely costly, such that Ahaz had to raid the temple treasury to pay the demanded tribute. Assyria agreed. They attacked Damascus. Syria killed their king. On and on it goes. Israel and Judah too, for that matter, making alliances, only to have a short-term victory, replaced by their ally, not siding with somebody else against them. <laughs> Israel was a silly dove. Well, verse 13 continues with the bird metaphor. By God saying he'll throw a net over Israel the same way hunters throw a net over doves to capture them. And as Israel's ambassadors are going to the Gentile nations for their alliances, God will throw a net over them to capture them. Now I'm convinced that this captivity is symbolic for the captivity Israel is soon going to face by means of their exile. And the reason for this particular symbolism of birds and nets might not be obvious. See, it is from the outset that God has repeatedly told Israel that even though they think they are suffering misfortune at the hands of an enemy that was just simply too big and too strong for them, in fact, it is God himself that is directly causing it. Now, it may seem as though Assyria is the one throwing the net over Israel, capturing them, but in fact, it is Yehovah doing it as a consequence of their idolatry and unfaithfulness to him. It is God throwing the net. Now, verse 13 moves us into the fourth and final segment of Hosea chapter 7. God telling Israel that the destruction of Israel's government and nation cannot be stopped, can't even be slowed down. Saying woe is a term of divine judgment. Woe to Israel is pronounced because they strayed from their God. Destruction is Israel's punishment because God is more than offended. Israel has wronged him. He continues with the rhetorical question, should I redeem them when they have treated him in, treated him in such a treacherous way? However, the Greek Septuagint version of this verse, as reflected in the King James Version, is not, should I redeem them, but rather, though I have redeemed them. That is, the first way is asking, should I rescue Israel from Assyria? The second way is, I've already rescued Israel, no doubt from Egypt a long time ago, in the time of Moses, and yet now they tell lies against me. Two different thoughts. Now, although there's ambiguity, I'm fully inclined to go with the second way. God is utterly indignant that after all he did for Israel in redeeming them from Egypt's grip, they have continually mistreated him by their unfaithfulness ever since. You know, Israel's history from Mount Sinai forward was one of constantly flirting with idolatry. It's only that Ephraim Israel has just kind of raised the bar by turning idolatry and perversion of their formerly orthodox Hebrew faith into an art form. Verse 14 is another of those that has been typically rendered for centuries 
But you know what? When you actually look at it, it makes no sense. What Israel is doing, that they would be wailing from their beds. I mean, think about that. What are they doing? Why would they be laying in bed wailing? Ginsburg has a wonderful solution that I really like. But we have to back away and rise up to the 30,000 foot view to see it. See, the entire book of Hosea speaks in terms of Israel's adultery. And even the first three chapters use Hosea and Gomer's marriage as a sexually charged symbol of adulterous Israel. So Ginsburg says it makes a lot more sense to see verse 14 from that context and perspective. Thus he says it should be translated as, They did not cry to me from their throats while they were making noises upon their beds. Now don't let the cry from their throats throw you. Okay? It's that in ancient Biblical Hebrew, ancient, not modern, Biblical Hebrew, the word lev, heart, that actually means mind, all right, or from a descriptive standpoint, the heart is the seat of, of emotions and our, and our thoughts. It also occasionally is used to mean throat. And we can find this, same use of the word I'm talking about, same use of the word lev, in Isaiah 33.18 and 59.18 and Psalms 19.15 and 49.4, a few other verses. So the throat is used as the organ of speech. And following the theme of adultery, then we have these men who are having sex with prostitutes, laying on prostitutes' beds, making noises of ecstasy instead of using their voices, their throats, as they should to cry out to God for mercy and for help. Further, the second half of verse 14 says that these men also slash themselves for the sake of corn, that means grain, okay, and wine. Now what this is speaking of is sacrificing to the Baals and the manner in which Baal uh, worshipers often will do things to themselves in order to show sincerity by literally cutting themselves and bleeding. So they are sacrificing to the Baals, they're cutting themselves, and in addition to the wailing of ecstasy, now they're wailing in pain. And we read of these same sorts of pagan worship practices in Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Okay, we're going to stop here for today. And we'll conclude chapter 7 next time, and we'll open up chapter 8. Okay?